You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series, The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writers' Centre at writerscentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 69 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Oh, Val, it's so boring, but I'm cold. <laughs> and um, apart from being cold. The Antarctic <laughs> vortex is uh, it's pretty much settled on my house, I think. Oh, no. so. Um, apart from being cold, I'm excellent because my children have gone back to school after two weeks of school holidays. Mm. And so I am just sort of struggling to the surface of the work that I have to do this week, which is not a bad place. I've done lots of gardening. I've had lots of inspiration. You know, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go, Val. And what nice. about you? Uh, okay. Well, I've been to Tasmania, actually, where it was colder than mm-hmm. here. Oh, right. Okay. We're yes. going to have a cold off now? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Fine. I, I, I win. Okay. Um, you win. <laughs> But uh, I thought it was really interesting because I finally got to go to Mona, the Museum of Old and New Art, for the first time. Mm. And it's definitely worth a visit. So if you ever go to Tasmania, make sure it's on your list to, to go to Mona because it's it's really interesting. And, um, you know, I don't really get everything that is no. curated there because some of it's really weird. Mm. Um but but that's okay because, you know, you go there, you appreciate stuff and I, I just loved it. It was really good, definitely. Okay. Were there any unicorns there? Any unicorns at Mona? No, but there were lots of um, highly unusual exhibits. Excellent. Mm. All right. Well, speaking well, of unicorns and highly unusual exhibits, what have you got for us in the world of books and light? <laughs> Well, I came across this link this week in the Telegraph, as in the UK Telegraph, Mm -hmm. and it was called Welcome to the World's Most Luxurious Libraries. Now, this piqued my interest because in in just a mere few days, I'm moving house. And I'm moving house and I'm going to get my own, you know, home office, my own study. And I've been fantasizing and making little Pinterest boards on what that might look like. Oh. Yes. So Are you going to have a library? Well, I don't know. I'm going to have books, obviously. But um, uh, I, I, I looked at this because I love some libraries. I just think they're absolutely gorgeous. And some Mm. of these of the world's most luxurious libraries have just got some gorgeous, um, you know, furniture and ideas and themes. You know, I love typography and there's this gigantic rug in a room that is just pure typography. And, um, it's just beautiful. I've just used it for inspiration and sort of fantasizing about the kind of gorgeous library I will never have, even though I'm moving to a new house. So what does your, so in my, in my mind, mm. my perfect library has always got shelves all the way to the ceiling and one of those little ladders, you know, the ladders that move along and you can climb the ladders to the shelves. Yes. That okay, used to has be. has to have that. Yes. That used to be my perfect oh, library. Have you moved on? 
Well, because that sort of lends itself to a more traditional look. And I've decided to go for a very clean and fresh and not minimalistic in any way. How can you be minimalistic when you have a library? You can't. (laughs) Um, But a clean, fresh, modern sort of stylized look. Well, Mm. that's what my Pinterest board says anyway. Whether that occurs in real life is a whole other thing. Will you be colour coding your books? (laughs) No, but I colour code my clothes um, okay. All right, right there, too much information. Let's move on. What else have you got for me? I've got something that is particularly relevant to you because you love maps. I do. Yes. What so have this you got for me? is on Book Riot mm-hmm. and it is a post on cool maps of fictional literary places. Oh, isn't that wonderful? So there's a map of Hogwarts, there's a map of Middle Earth, there's a map of Narnia. You can print out a map of Narnia and put that on your wall so you don't have to, you know, go through your cupboard door. There's a Game of Thrones map. Oh, um, that would be complicated. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, there's there's a map of Oz if you ever want to go be off to see the wizard. want to find it, yes. Yes. With complete with the yellow brick road, but wow. you know all sorts of um, gorgeous maps, and I'm I'm just wondering if they're for sale actually, because that would be really clever, wouldn't it? That would be clever. You'll have to see if you can find one for us. Yeah. Um, I am in the process of proofreading at the moment the third book in the Mapmaker Chronicle Ooh. series, and it has in it um, uh, the the um, draft copy of the map um, of Quinn's map, and awesome. I, it's just so exciting. Like you see it in place like that and you see the, you know, this invention of this world that you have. Mm. <laughs> it's just extraordinary. Like it's an amazing thing Did you draw the map? See. I drew a very bad sketch of the map. Right. And then Cheryl Orsini, who is a very talented children's book illustrator, has taken my extremely bad sketch and has uh, is in the process of turning it into something really quite cool. Um, wow. So I, I know. And the, the thing that gets me about it is like I, I'm, I'm going to have a map that I can put on my wall. Yeah, absolutely. It's extra. It's so cool. Then you like should send it to Book ever. Riot because then it'll I be will. there with Middle Earth. I will. Oh. How cool oh. would that be? Oh, I'm speechless at the thought. Yeah. And that's something that doesn't happen very often, isn't it? <laughs> really. <laughs> well, moving on to something very, very different. Right. I couldn't help but read this post. Okay. It's on the Wicked Writing blog and it's written by a guy called John Yeoman and it's called How to Write a Bestseller While Losing Weight. What? <laughs> And it's really quite bizarre. It's quite a long post. But this guy got this idea that for the number of words that you crank out in a day, so you have to write every day, like you just have right. to, and you have to have a um, a word count target, obviously. So if you write 1,500 words that day, you can only eat 1,500 calories. Oh. Are you kidding me? With editing, there's a formula. So it's it's of, it's a percentage of the number of words you edit. So if you um, edit 9,000 words that day, you can eat 3,000 calories or something like that. So basically you can, you know, if you want to have a cheat day, you've got to crank out those words, you know. But if you've only written 500 words, well, <laughs> that's not many calories. And he he's lost weight. So he's gone. Okay. He's gone from 95 kilos 
to 76 kilos in about 18 months. Not 14, okay. 14 months. And in that period, he tidied up four novels. That's four editing jobs yeah. that, that were only in draft form. And he, you know, he put them on Amazon and, and got, you know, uh, top top star reviews across, you know, Amazon. And um, he reckons he wouldn't have done it if he didn't have that uh, discipline of writing every day, achieving a certain word count. So he, his aim was 1,500 original words per day, making his food allowance 1,500 calories. Okay. It's very complicated. Uh, I can see, look, uh, under underpinning all of this, if you take away all the smoke and mirrors of the weight loss and everything, is the discipline yes. aspect. So it's the discipline in writing and it's the discipline in eating. I can also offer for, for your delectation mm-hmm. uh, possibly an easier way to do this. Okay. And that is that um, I saw a post recently which suggested that um, Stanford researchers, so Stanford University in the US, have um, confirmed what philosophers and writers have always known, and this is something that's very close to my own personal heart, yes. and that is that walking fosters creativity. So oh, yes. I've often talked about the fact that I walk kilometres and kilometres and kilometres a day mm. um, for various reasons. I, I you know, I, I, I live, you know, relatively close to my town centre and I walk to town and I walk the boys to school and, of course, Procrasti Pup and I like to slug out a few k's every day. But mm. I do it also um, if I'm stuck with mm. a if I'm writing something and I get stuck I I walk and I don't just walk like I'm just going to go walk around the block and clear my head mm. I mean I put on my shoes and I walk and walk and walk until you get into that state where you're sort of in a bit of a daze a bit of a trance and you're not really thinking but your subconscious is thinking for you mm. and then you come back and you write and um gardening I always talk about gardening oh, as yes. well. Gardening does the same thing for me. And so basically the, the Stanford University researchers have discovered that that link um, between walking, that active meditation mm. um, and creativity is most definitely there, which I, they could have just rung me yeah. <laughs> and I would have told them that. But anyway, they've gone out of their way and I'll put the link to that in the show notes as well. Yeah. Because, um, I always say that one of the best things I ever did was get myself a Fitbit as with regards to being a writer because it just reminds you that you've got to get up and you've got to, you know, you've got to put those steps in every day because, you know, writing is a very sedentary thing. And if you're yes. right, if you're in full flow and you're like, I wrote um, a couple of weeks ago before the holidays, I wrote 10,000 words in three days because mm. I was really in the zone. Mm. I did not move very much on no. those particular days, but I moved a lot in the lead up to that and afterwards. So it's, you know, I, I think it's really important to keep moving. Moving is so important, not just for, for the size of your bottom, mm. but for your creativity. Well, I bought a Fitbit and... Um, and then the battery went and you never replaced it? No, I put it through the wash and it died. Oh, even better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know. I didn't, it didn't last very long. But anyway, um, yes, walking, good for you. Maybe I should revisit the idea of getting a treadmill desk. No, no, because they're so slow. Like you've got to be walking so slowly. You're better off doing your stuff and then going for a half hour, you know, good paced, solid, get out there and have a look around. Okay. When you move to your new place, you can sit in your library for a little while <laughs> and then you can walk around your new neighbourhood okay. and get to know it. All yes. right, I shall. <laughs> and I also think that dogs should be tax deductions for writers. Oh, I know, yes. Mm-hmm. But um, let's move on to another link that you have for us. I do. About children's authors. Oh, yes. This was a terrific um, 
post that appeared in theguardian.com on their um, I think it was in their blog, I'm not exactly, in their children's book section anyway. Um, and it was top writing tips for new children's authors from top editors, mm. which is like a really complicated headline <laughs> for basically the fact that these editors are giving um, really, really good advice. You know, they're talking about everything from the length of a novel. Mm. Um, you know, kids' books, uh, and I know Harry Potter was like a million words long, but most kids' books are somewhere between the 40 to 60. 60 is pretty big for yes. a middle grade book. Yes. Um, the Mapmaker Chronicles books were, were all are all somewhere between the 53 to 55 mm. um, word count. I'm working on one at the moment that I think is going to be 45, you know, right. tops because it's just the way that the, the arc works and I think it's, it's the best length for it. So um, think about that sort of stuff. And, um, you know, they talk about, you know, motivation and how, how important it is that characters have reasons for behaving or acting in a certain way. And I think that people who write adult novels um, think about that generally carefully because they think, oh, adults will be looking for, you know, like you, you know when you're reading a character that is only there because the author wants them to be there. Yeah. And they somehow think that kids aren't going to notice, but they do. Yes. And it's really, really important to think about that as well. Um, and then they talk about everything about, you know, how important it is that the um, that you appreciate I mean, it doesn't matter how few words you write, even a 500-word picture book is mm. going to need editing. And in some cases, the 500-word picture book, you're going to go over more and more and more times than the 50,000-word middle-grade Absolutely. Because those think, 500 have to be right. And I think you've brought up an interesting point because a lot of people don't know that most picture books are 500 words. They think that they can go on for pages and pages and pages as long as there's several you know, great pictures and some good words to go with them. But in yeah. fact, there's quite a strict structure with picture books, isn't there? No, there is, absolutely. Mm. And, and you know, you're writing to a set page count. You've got to think about the, is, is it a 24-page book or is it a 32-page book? Those are the two main lengths of mm. picture book. And you have to basically map it out in your head as to what's going to go on each page and how it's going to look and how does the rhythm of the book, how is the rhythm of the book affected by the pages that, you know, left, right pages and yep. things like that. Um, that sort of stuff is very, very important. Um, there's a very good piece of advice um, by a guy called Ben Horsland. I'm not exactly sure what publishing company he's or editing you know, company he's from. He talks about the fact that it is really important to, you know, write the book of your heart, like the story that you feel you have to write, mm. but you need to use common sense. Like you're writing for, if you're writing a children's book, you're writing for a children's market um, and you need to think about where your book is going to, I mean, I mean, this works, I think, for any any author in any area. Mm. You've got to think about where your book's going to fit in the market because, um writing is a business and yep. it's it's really important to remember particularly if you want to be published you know by a mainstream publisher you've got to think about how your book fits into what they publish and into the market and where is it going to sit on the bookshelf mm. that kind of stuff absolutely anyway, um but look fantastic advice in this post and i think it's really worth having a list ha, ha, sorry having a listen to having mm. a look at and um, we'll put that link in the show notes for sure. But I thought I would talk about something this week because somebody asked me this question during the week and I oh, thought, yay. oh, that we may as well discuss this on the podcast because if this person needs clarification, maybe other people do too. Uh, so, and that is the difference between when you use fewer and when you use less because some people use them interchangeably and often when you watch television and you watch the ads on TV or you go past a billboard on the freeway, 
you get a nervous twitch when you see it used incorrectly. So do, do you know how they're used, Al? I think so. Mm-hmm. And what, you want me to... Go on. <laughs> well, you would say, like, there are fewer children's books in the market than there used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't think of a sentence using less off the top of my head. You may but have to help me with that. Um, uh, less quality. I was just trying to relate it to that. (laughs) Yes, no, you're right. So when you can count things like children's books, you can count one, two, three, four, five children's books, then you use the word fewer. But when you can't count things like like quality, because you can't say one quality, two quality, three quality, you use less. So you might say um, there are fewer buttons on that shirt, but there's less fabric. Oh, I see. So if you can count it, it's fewer. And if you can't count it, it's less. Oh, there you go. That's a nice, easy way to remember it. Thanks for that, Valerie. That's very helpful. (laughs) I I see there are some other um, examples in this post that you're going to link us to. My personal favourite and the one I have to, that I I confess I have to think about every time is affect and effect Mm. um, is is one that I... That's a whole podcast, Alison. That's a whole episode. (laughs) Affect versus effect is a whole podcast. Sorry, okay. We'll talk about that next week. We don't have guide to grammar. Yeah, we don't have time to cover affect and effect, (laughs) but we will one day, everyone. So we're going to move on to the world of blogging this week because I've just spent three days at a conference and I met a lot of bloggers, and uh, I came across this bizarre blog. I mean, look, there might be a lot of people out there who don't think it's bizarre. But I found it quite intriguing and it's for preppers. Now, do you know what a prepper is, Al? Well, I I confess that I do, Valerie, because it's Mm. sort of, um, well, it's someone who's preparing for the end of the world. Yes. Am I right? Yes, you are right. And um, so this blog is called Survival Life and it's all about how to survive if the end of the world does come. So it has blog, uh, you know, blog posts like uh, choosing a folding survival knife, part one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> choosing a folding survival knife, part two. Two parts to that. Yes. 21 items preppers should keep around. And uh, making your own emergency lights from solar yard lights. Hmm. Easy ways to set up your ham radio. So, you know, there's lots of um, lots of tips and tricks in case the end of the world comes about. But this isn't some niche, you know, uh, blog written by a crazy person. Um, its Facebook page has over 800,000 likes. Wow. Um, it has a spin-off association called the American Family Protection Association and uh, where you, for $20 a month, you, and you can join its membership and get lots of tips on how to survive the end of the world. And it's absolutely fascinating that there is obviously a whole – tribe of people who who love and adore this this blog i have to ask you valerie how did you come across it i met the people who run it oh Mm. okay yeah so it's i mean it's a it's a pretty slick looking um thing i I find these kind of i mean it's it's clever because the headlines and things are all like i would have a look at choosing a folding survival night part one Mm -hmm. if only to find out how it could be a two-part series. <laughs> um, but the thing I find interesting about it is that it is is that the way it, you know it sort of taps into a fear while presenting it as 
quite a mainstream thing. Yeah, absolutely. These are just like for normal people. But maybe, I don't know, I don't really find that I come across very many preppers in my own life. Do you? Well, I I wouldn't say so, but I don't know for sure because it's the kind of thing that people might do, you know, surreptitiously so that they're prepared and you're not. I don't know. I know. It depends how much they like you. If they really like you, they might be trying to talk you into joining them. <laughs> but maybe they don't like us as much as we think they do. <laughs> so that we don't need to survive. Yeah, we don't, they don't need us. We're not that important. <laughs> We're taking too many of the world's resources in yeah. case the world comes to an end. We are. What would okay. we bring except for, you know, mm. chat and wit? <laughs> but if, um, if anyone has come across some highly unusual blogs, if you think they're unusual or quite niche and you think, oh, my God, they've got a blog for that, just tweet us and let us know. Yeah, do. We love it. Yeah, so yeah, tweet us at Valerie Koo or at Al Tate. Yes. Um, and we, we would love to know. But um, also I thought I would mention now that we've, we keep talking about, we'll put the link in the show notes and some people have tweeted us, where are the show notes? Well, they're at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast. So mm-hmm. you'll get all of your links there. Yes. But let us move on let to us. our interview this week. Who have you got for us, Valerie? This was fascinating. I really enjoyed talking to Sarah Heppeler. Now, Sarah is uh, based in the US and she is an editor at Salon.com and she has been a journalist all her career, but she has been a journalist and person who um, has drunk a lot as in alcohol, Mm. to the point where she blacks out a lot. Now, it's really interesting because, you know, she's been a journalist, but then she moved into the realm of personal essays, which requires quite of, you know, putting a lot of yourself out there, if you know what I mean, in very popular columns for lots of different top publications in the US. But recently she decided to uh, go sober, And she has written this book called Blackout, Remembering the Things I Drank to Forget. Mm -hmm. And it is very confronting, uh, but also very, very well written. And I always admire people who uh, tackle a memoir because it's hard to get the balance right between being too self-indulgent and navel-gazing and being... um, you know, truly having some holding a mirror up to what's been happening in your life and explaining it in a way that people are going to find interesting and compelling and not nauseate, nause, nauseous inducing, yes. nauseating. <laughs> That's the one. That's the one. so. Let's have a chat to Sarah. Great. Sarah Heppeler is the personal essays editor at Salon.com. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, New Republic, Glamour, Slate. Guardian and Morning News. She has worked as a music critic, travel writer, film reviewer, sex blogger, beauty columnist and high school English teacher. She lives in Dallas, Texas. Her memoir is Blackout, Remembering the Things I Drank to Forget. So Sarah, thank you so much for joining us, joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. Now, you're talking to us uh, while you're in Dallas, is that correct? That's right. I live in Dallas, yes. And so for those people who aren't yet familiar with your book, because it only just came out, uh, tell us what it's about. Sure, sure. Well, it's about falling in love with alcohol and thinking that alcohol can save you Mm. and having to discover that it won't and that you have to save yourself. And why did you decide to write it? 
Well, what happened was that I was one of these women that came of age at a time when drinking was really part of my identity and my, we didn't use the word brand back then, but you know, like my brand, I was a drinker. Mm. And so when I had to quit drinking at the age of 35, I really thought my life was over. I had been a writer by trade, but I was so fragile, so vulnerable. I felt like I'd lost my battle armor and I didn't write for six months, but I wrote a story about quitting drinking and it got a lot of accolades. And it was the first time that I kind of heard my voice, the voice that's been mine as a writer all along. Mm. And I thought, you know, maybe, maybe I still have that, which by the way, is the lesson that sobriety will teach you. You know, you think that alcohol does all these things for you. It makes you funny. It makes you brave. It makes you smarter, faster, sexier. And what you realize is that you really are those things. You know, what alcohol does is it lowers your inhibitions and allows you to be freer with the things that you have inside you already. Mm. So, you know, when I, when I heard my voice, you know, and I thought, that's what I want. I felt a real call to make my sober life good, to make it something that I didn't have to drink my way out of. And, you know, in writing, in publishing circles, they, you know, they, they tell you, write what you know. And, mm. What did I know? Like, I know two things really well, myself and drinking. Like, I had an unofficial PhD in drinking. And so it made sense. I also was picking up these recovery memoirs, and some of them would say things like, women hide their drinking. They're very embarrassed by their drinking, and it's not part of their social circles. And I was like, what? You know, and what that reflects is that there has been a cultural shift around women and drinking over the last 20, 30, 40 years that uh, those of us who came of age, I I went to college in the 90s, and it was just sort of a given that we all kind of drank with the boys. And as I emerged into my adult life as a a writer at Alternative Newsweeklies here in Texas and later in New York, you know, of course I drank. And I drank openly and I drank with pride. I sort of always took a certain amount of, uh, yeah, like I, I took pride in the fact that I could keep up. Mm-mm. Now, you said that you're a writer by trade. So before you wrote this memoir, you've been a journalist, a columnist, a mm-hmm. blogger. Uh, when did you, if you can just take me back, when did you decide you wanted to become a writer? Well, you know, my mom tells stories about me writing, you know, next to her while she was working on her dissertation from a very early age. I think it was, I was a lonely kid. And I think writing was a way of having companionship. Which, by the way, I think alcohol served that role later. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, when I was about 12 years old, I started writing these kind of crazy horror stories because I was obsessed with the writer Stephen King. <laughs> and I was, I was getting a lot of attention for that. And, you know, kids are always trying to figure out what's my specialness? Yeah. What am I? What can I do that nobody else can do? And writing was something I identified pretty early on. So... You know, I wanted to be a writer since the time I was 12. And then when I graduated from college, uh, I got a job at a, at a newspaper. It was kind of a surprise thing. Like I'd interned there and they gave me a job and it was like, whoa, wait a minute. You, get, you mean I get to see movies free and you know, go to shows for free? It just seemed like it was, it's, this is too good to be true. And I, and I stayed for many years. You know, it's been a, it's been a good career for me. Mm. So you started off in journalism then, which is a very objective craft. But then later on, you moved into personal essay and obviously now into memoir. Yeah. Did you find it odd to switch to 
talking about yourself, you know, going from a very objective discipline to talking about yourself where you're not, because usually you're not meant to be in the story at all. No, it's a good question. You know, um, I can remember being in college and I would get irritated like when the critic would even use the word I. It was like, it's not, we know it's your opinion. You don't need to tell us it's your opinion. (laughs) You know, I had, I had very specific feelings about that. And, um, but what happened for me was, first of all, I worked at an alternative news weekly and I don't know what the Australian equivalent of that would be, but but see, here, it's kind of like these newspapers that are a little bit outside the mainstream, you know, a little artsier, a little edgier. And we were, there was a lot of first-person narrative because it didn't have the traditions of your daily journalism. Mm. Um, so that was the first thing. But the second thing was I was surrounded by people that knew so much more about politics and pop culture than I did. Mm. And for me to pretend like I had that kind of authority felt fraudulent. And I think also going back to that write what you know thing, it was like, for whatever reason, whether it's my mental obsessions or my own personal navel gazing or the fact that my mother's a therapist, I just had this in this lock on writing about my internal emotional experience and other people seem to like it. And then I think what happens as a writer is once people start liking what you do, you're kind of like, oh, well, forget that thing I said about using the first person. You know, like, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, because everybody likes it. (laughs) So you start swimming towards the warmer waters, as I say. Um, You know, and and it's it's a form that I have come to have tremendous fondness for. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that I don't think that sometimes it's overused. Sometimes I don't, I think sometimes it's done badly. But I think to talk about our own experiences you know, I think it's a very valid, an extremely valid and important form of storytelling. Mm. It's obviously a form that uh, comes naturally to you because some people try it and they do fall into the trap of becoming self-indulgent or navel-gazing yeah. or writing about stuff. It's just like, I don't care right. <laughs> about reading this. So at any point, did you have to I, learn how to identify when you were doing this or if well, you fell into that trap? The thing is, is like you, you know, I have to be, I have to always have to be honest with myself. That sounds so easy, but it's like, we tell ourselves lies all the time. It's just lies of convenience. Like, oh yeah, I I like that person. But then you have to dig down and be like, actually, you know what? I don't really like that person. I'm just saying that because it sounds good. Mm. You know, so I'm always having to dig inside myself. When my writing feels flat, it's normally because I'm not being completely honest. Um, Because I believe you know, like real life is tremendously fascinating material. Um, psychological motivations between two people talking in a room, you know, what they say versus what they think, what they want to believe versus what they do. All that stuff is really fascinating. It's full of, it's full of tension. But, you know, what happens is that people, they want to write too often. They write a narrative like they're either the hero or the villain. Mm. And most, most people are neither. We're somewhere in the middle. We're just playing a part. And the part is complicated. Like, even in my most heroic moments, I've had parts of it were kind of messed up and wrong. You know, like, there's never, there's never, like, pure, pure intention, I guess, is what I'm saying. So I feel like as long as I can stay connected to that and the kind of rich emotional complexity of a moment, then you've got really good material. But if and and I, and I happen to like kind of busting myself on things, you know, and being like, oh, you know what? I said this, but I was totally lying at that moment. Uh, that's interesting to me. Uh, I think somehow it makes me feel better 
to to admit it all on the page. Like somehow that's like a confessional booth to me, mm. you know. And uh, I know, I, you know, sometimes in life we don't get it right the first time, and so this always gives me a second time to be like, well, here's what I meant to say. <laughs> yes, yes, and he's a way for me to help understand what happened. That's exactly right. I'm always unpacking that moment. Mm. Why did I say that? Like I'll leave sometimes arguments and be like, why did I say that? <laughs> you know, so, and then I have to go back and, and, and understand that there, there were these kind of intense motivations behind it. So I'm yeah. sorry I interrupted you. No, no, not at all. Well, you, you do write about some very personal and revealing things in your book and also in some of your essays. Uh, how comfortable are you in laying it all out there or are there certain things that you don't reveal and you have a boundary where you go, I'm not going to talk about that, but I'll talk about everything else? Well, I think every writer, it would be so strange to me if every writer told you everything. I mean, it just seems like, yeah, there's totally boundaries. I'm always looking at what serves the story. Mm. Like, what do you need to know? Is there going to be a detail that might be salacious but it's distracting. Mm. And if I give it to you, then your mind's not going to be locked in on the, what I'm trying to tell here. Mm. You know, it's just like when you're putting together an outfit, like you don't just put on like all sorts of bling all over yourself, you know, mm -hmm. like how, like how do you create a landscape or a look or what, you know, I'm trying to tell a story. Mm. Um, that said, I try to, I really try to stay rigorous with myself, you know, and a lot of times I'll have conversations with readers, you know, like first readers that I have and say, you know, well, there's also this. Should I be, you know, is that important? No, that's not important. That's just distracting. Um, because also, you know, in memoirs, there's often been this game of brinksmanship. Like how many gross details can you include? <laughs> and I think that's distracting because just like in an action movie, shouldn't be an accumulation of explosions because other, then the explosions become dull. You really want an explosion that is done with high emotional stakes. Mm. So I always want to focus in on that moment. What do you need to know? What's the stuff that's important for you to understand what's going on? That said, I do say a lot of things about myself. And, you know, I always think, like sometimes Lena Dunham, the actress in, in mm. America, do you know her? Yeah, of course. Mm. Okay, cool. Well, she talks sometimes about being naked on her television show, mm. and then it just doesn't bother her. Well, let me tell you, I could never do that in a million years. <laughs> like, never. That horrifies me. The, I, that's my nightmare, is I'm on a show and I'm naked. <laughs> yes. But for whatever reason, like these stories, when I tell these stories, it doesn't, like, it, I'm lacking the embarrassment gene. And like a lot of people will say to me like, oh, that's so brave. I, you know, I would be really embarrassed. And it sometimes makes me think like, well, I, I mean, should I be embarrassed? I guess I should be more <laughs> embarrassed than I am. But, um, but I, but I'm not. And I don't know if that's because my mother is a therapist and she, from a very young age, kind of gave me this idea that we all have messed up. Every human being deals with this kind of crazy, conflicted emotions inside mm. of them, you know, that there's nothing shameful about that. Mm. So the fact that I do it in public, it just, to me, it's what I can do. It's what I can contribute as a writer. It's what I can do maybe that other people can't do because you're always looking for that as a writer. Yeah. You know? And when you were, uh, you know, like a freelance journalist, I understand that you've done, you know, you've been a music critic, you've been a travel mm -hmm. writer, you've been a beauty columnist, you've yeah. been a sex blogger. Yeah. 
Did you decide to try out different beats or was this that, that part of your training or did you have a strategy in the development of your freelance journalism career? Yeah, my strategy was you go wherever the money is. <laughs> <laughs> like I was living in New York and like I had a really high rent and I had to just do whatever they asked me to do. I remember I was writing about video games at one point and it's like, I don't know anything about video games, <laughs> but you know, you do it because they ask you to do it. And I think that's one of the cool things about journalism um, that I don't really have any specific area of expertise, but you become what the publication needs. Mm-hmm. And if they need somebody to write about uh, sex and culture, then you do it. And if you need somebody, they need somebody to write about travel, then you do it. And it's this wonderful excuse to become maybe not an expert in that, but like uh, to to find some expertise and mm. to deep dive into those territories. So I just, you know, I've, I've got this funny little dilettante toolkit of all these different things that I've done um, that have been, you know, I did them for six months or a year, however long the contract or the money lasted. And it's been great. It's been really fun. Mm. And so you're now the personal essays editor at salon.com. What makes a good personal essay? What are the key elements that you always look for when people are sending you personal essays? Well, I read a bunch of essays. And so, like, and I mean, you know, maybe like 100 a week. I've never really counted. Wow. But, but, you know, one of the things I'm looking for is get my attention. Mm. You know, if I've got that kind of a load in front of me, it's all going to start to blend together. And once somebody's kind of taking their time and painting a scene, it's like, I don't have time for it. So it's like, grab my attention, you know, start with drama. And so then I'm looking for surprising truths. I'm looking for somebody to say something where I go, ha, huh, yeah, that's right. I know. I do that too. Or like uh, a story that's riveting. You know, I got a piece not long ago by a mother who's, child had swallowed a bottle of pills. Like the story opens with this, her four-year-old coming to her with a bottle of pills that are empty and the kids got, you know, just swallowed all of them. And it's like, and, and I think they were, it's, it's Xanax or something like that. And it's like, oh my God, like what's going to happen? You know, you start at the top of the hill of the roller coaster, yeah. you know, and you want to find out what happens. I love stories. I'm a sucker for stories. I want a beginning, middle and an end, you know, Uh, And I want to be taken on this journey. I want to be taken out of my own brain. But I'm usually looking for people that I feel like I can trust and I like their voice. And I want to go with them wherever they're going to take me. Are the quality of the essays that you receive, obviously you get them in a a large volume, of Mm -hmm. a standard where you can, you know, they can go into a sub-editing phase and then they can get published? Or do you actually work with writers structurally to say, you know what, can we have a bit more of this? Can we have a bit less of this? What, what kind, you know, where on the spectrum does that fall? I wish I had more time to do what you just described because I do enjoy it because I think sometimes people don't quite know exactly what the, what the, mm, the beats of their essay should be. And because I read so many, I'm pretty good at it. Mm. Um, I like working with writers on their essays. I don't always have enough time to do it. My, Time has been tremendously compromised over the last two years, three years working on this book. And so more often I'm taking pieces that they don't require as much. But it really depends on, like, if I know that you have a story that nobody else can tell, mm. like, um, 
let's say you had an affair with a congressman or something like mm-hmm. that. And it's a really interesting story about intrigue and, <clears throat> excuse me, and, um, and, you know, politics and getting caught in a scandal. If I know that's something that you can tell, I'm going to put in the extra time to work with you on it. Um, and, and, and try to craft it a little bit better. I don't necessarily have that time for somebody who's got a story about being a first time mom because (laughs) it's, it's a more common story. And I kind of just have to take, like, I have to look for those pieces. I have to kind of look for like something that's a little bit more ready to go. Yeah, of course. So talking about the writing of your book, um, how did you juggle that and your commitments as as the editor at Salon and, you know, your other writing commitments? When you were in the thick of writing it, did you have any kind of particular routine, like wake up at this time, have a cup of tea, meditate, whatever? Yeah, yeah <laughs> tell us, exactly. Tell us about it. Well, one of the things I learned was that I have to do my writing first thing in the day. Mm. And otherwise... I will procrastinate and I will put it off and I will make up excuses and my brain will go. The longer I stay awake, the more kind of fuzzy I am. So I would wake up at 630. I'd make my coffee. I'd, uh, you know, do a little meditation. And then I start at seven o'clock. I go seven to 11. Now I didn't always do this because then also like sometimes you get like email and Facebook and stuff, (laughs) but I would try, I would try to do that four hour block. And then I would do salon work in the afternoon. Right. So, and what was nice about it was that reading other people's stories took me out of my own because I was a little stuck inside my story, which mm. is fine, but it's also like, oh, let's, let's open the windows in here a little bit, you know, and, uh, and it put me more directly in contact with what are the cliches that are being done again and again that I shouldn't do, um, you know, it, it helped me hone my craft and it helped me get out of my head. And it was a different kind of skill set, you know, mm. uh, writing and editing kind of use two different parts of your brain. So in that four hour block, did you have a target like X number of words or, or, or anything like that? I've seen that before. Um, I, I've never been able to do that. You know, me, it's just like, just go as fast as you can. I'm <laughs> you know? just like, do as much as you can. And the way I write, sometimes four hours, like if I'm not, if my, if my like uh, editing machine is, is on, you know, if I can manage to put that away mm. and I can just type, mm. you know, that'll be thousands of words in four hours. Yeah. But there's yeah. other times when I'm not like that and I'm not hooked in and I'm doing that annoying thing that's like, you know, m- rearranging furniture where it's just kind of like moving words around and you've done 50 words mm. and an hour's passed and it's like, I hate this. But the thing is, is just stay there. Yeah. You know, I think for so long I would get frustrated by the writing and so I would just leave because I didn't like uncomfortable feelings. But it's like if you don't leave, if you just stay there, it'll get done. Mm, absolutely. So how long did it take you in that routine where you did the writing in the morning, you did your salon work in the afternoon, how long did it take you to get to your first manuscript? Well, it took about a year, but I should say that prior to that, there was like another year of just free writing to kind of try to figure out what kind of story I was going to tell. Mm. Um, and then there was like a year of like honing and editing. So it t- the, the whole process of the book took three years. 
And, you know, and then there was a year of waiting for it to come out. And, um, you know, part of that, most of that, was that when you're going to tell a story about your life, you're kind of standing down a corridor where, um, like, you have a hundred different options. You know, which door are you going to go through? Mm. And so you'll try one door and say, uh, not that one, and then come back. And, you know, finally you just have to pick one door and keep walking. And that's what I finally had to do. But there was a long time there where I was kind of trying different things. Mm. Um, And it was just a lot of uh, feeling my way around. When you were writing, or even before you were writing, and perhaps you were just thinking about writing a memoir, did you um, were you inspired by any other memoirs out there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the really central books about women and drinking is a 1996 memoir by Caroline Knapp called Drinking a Love Story. And it's just a gorgeous book about um, the feelings underneath the drinking and she's a beautiful writer who writes with incredible psychological insight. Um, she, uh, I read that book when I was like 23 or something, and I first thought I, I might have an alcohol problem. Mm-hmm. And I read it like while drinking wine, which I thought was so <laughs> transgressive of me, you know, mm-hmm. like, um, but I, and I remember just being like, like I saw myself in it. Mm. And I saw, like, that's probably going to be my future. Like, I'm probably going to have to quit drinking. And I, wa- I wasn't ready yet. Mm. But, I, and then I would come back to it. Like, every five or seven years, I would read it again. And, uh, and then I read it when I was in newly in recovery. And I always found new things in it. It was always a message in a bottle for me. It's just a beautiful, it's a beautiful story. And then I read, I read a whole bunch of recovery memoirs because I think, um, you can develop your own little addiction to those because you love hearing uh, other people's stories. And because when you're in, when I was new in sobriety, I was just so eager to get out of my own head, my own tortured headspace. And so, you know, that's what literature does, right? Is that it offers an escape. And I would, I just thrilled to kind of reading these other stories of other people's struggles, other people's downfalls, other people's frailties, you know, how did you, um, when you're a journalist, you write very short pieces in comparison mm-hmm. to a book, obviously. Personal essays are very short. How did you, did you, did you have to do anything to switch gears to go from, you know, I'm writing a 1,000 or even 2,000 word thing and now I'm writing an 80,000 word book. Yes. Like, yeah. what do you have to do to switch gears? Well, it was really hard. And I think that's one of the reasons it took me so long was because I had a really hard time switching that gear. Mm -hmm. And I think it's like, if you're really used to running wind sprints, Mm -hmm, you're not necessarily sure how to run a marathon. And I kept running wind sprints. I mean, like it really took a long time for me to break the habits of personal essay writing, Mm -hmm. which is that you do like 1500 words in one blurt and then you start over completely. Mm. And you don't, I had to learn how to do a sustained work where the first chapter still relates to the last chapter and there's 60,000 words between them, mm. you know, that was so hard for me. I really felt my way through it. And I, I think one of the problems I had was that I held on too tightly in the beginning and I thought that I should be able to write it front to back. I didn't, I did not have faith in the editing process. 
Mm. I did not have enough faith that um, I would sort it all out. I wish I'd let loose a little bit more and let myself go free and figure it out as I went along. It's like I was trying to be perfect the whole time, Mm. you know, and I think that really stops up writers. So how did you do it? Did you write it in a linear fashion in the end after you had some that time of free writing or did you write bits and then put them together like a jigsaw puzzle? How did you do it in the end? I think it's more or less was I think it more or less was written in a linear fashion. Once I figured out I think the first thing was like like what's the struggle like where does this begin? Mm. You know? And then um and I I wasn't even sure it was going to begin in this hotel room in Paris because I thought it, so it begins, the book begins with this, this, uh, I'm coming out of a blackout and mm. I'm in a hotel room with this guy and I don't know where he came from, mm. even though I have been talking to him. I just have no memory of it because a blackout is, you know, this self-imposed amnesia. Mm. And, um, and I was a little bit worried that that was going to be a little over the top for people. And so I played around with other beginnings, but that was the one I kept coming back to because for me, see, it was the scariest blackout of my life. And so once I knew that that was the beginning, then that's how, that, you know, kind of helps to slot things, you know, right. okay, I'm going to go back to that in a later chapter. And then, you know, there's going to be, the, so, so things start falling into place. But, um, and then once I knew that it was mostly going to just be, I was going to start at my childhood and go forward. I mean, I just pretty much wrote linearly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's a very powerful opening. Um, what was the most challenging part of writing this memoir? I mean, I think making it good. <laughs> like, I, that sounds so, I mean, it sounds so simplistic, but it's like, yeah, right. I was, I, I work in the publishing field. I mean, I work in media, I should say. Publishing yeah. sounds like books, but you know, it's like, I work in media and I work with a lot of critics and I work with a lot of people that don't BS me, you know? Mm. And I think there was a lot of like, you know, there's a lot of memoirs out there and you better make this one good. And, you know, there's a lot of recovery memoirs and what can you do different? And so I was always giving just a tremendous amount of thought to that. And I wanted to push the material so that it would not be something that people said, oh, this is so self-indulgent. Yeah. You know, because because I had some sense. I mean, I'm not, I wasn't the worst addict in the world by, by any means. I'm fairly, you know, I think a, a, there are plenty of people that would read my story and be like, well, her drinking wasn't that bad. I mean, I fell down staircases and I, you know, woke up in strange places. But, you know, I think some people would say, well, that's not that interesting. Mm -hmm. So you have to kind of push the material and give it more insight or awareness or something, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, That's what was so hard. And then I think the other part was dragging all the people in my life along with me. You know, one of the things Mm -hmm. about personal essays was I could mostly just focus on myself and this was something where it was like I knew that I was going to have to cast the net a little wider. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to write about my parents. I was going to write about the people that I had dated. I was going to write about close friends. And I worried tremendously about what effect that would have on them and what it would do and, and how they would take it. And if I was being fair, was I being tough? Was I being not tough enough? Was I, you know, like that whole dance, that was, that was yeah. hard. Were you being truthful? Yeah. Um, what was the easiest or the most fun part about writing the memoir? Well, the, the second half of the book came out really easily. And that yeah. was sort of a joy and a surprise. It's interesting. The first half of the book is really kind of going into the tunnel of addiction, mm. which is all the years, my drinking years. Mm. And the second half of the book is coming out of the tunnel. 
and uh, the years of sobriety. And I thought that was going to be the hardest to write because it would be the hardest to make interesting. You know, mm. because because drinking, it sort of like sells itself. It's like, well, you know, there's going to be like damage and bad decisions. And, you know, mm. it has the velocity of the drinking itself. And um, so I knew that was going to be. But, but I had so much material and it was really hard to structure it. And I was holding on so tightly. And somehow when I came out of the tunnel and I started on that second half, I mean, I just I just sort of, I just tore through that material. And that was really a joy and a surprise to discover. Um, and I don't know if that's because the second half of a book is easier to write than the first because you've learned the lessons <laughs> or if sobriety was just a little more clear to me as a subject than my drinking mm. um, or I don't know. Mm-hmm. So what are you working on now? Because obviously, even though the book's out now, you actually finished writing it a while ago. Uh-huh. So did you start on another major project shortly after or I, what are you doing now? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I gave that a lot of thought and I, I did start on something. You know, I, I wanted to do something. Out, you know, Blackout turned out to be a lot about my relationships with women, yeah. my mother and my female friends. And I didn't expect it. I didn't know that sitting down to write it, that it would be about women. But I really began to think about, you know, I wanted to write a, story, a collection of essays about my relationships with men, mm-hmm. um, especially with my, starting with my father, who is this very shy, quiet, hard-to-know man who has probably given me 50% of my genes, mm-hmm. and it would serve me very well to know him better. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's still a mystery to me. And my relationship with him is very different than my mother, who is very kind of extroverted and verbal and warm. And my father is Scandinavian and, um, you know, in, in, uh, introverted. So anyway, um, and I wanted to write about um, all sorts of different relationships with men. And I, I wanted to take a, a title that I, that I used for a personal essay series I wrote years ago called Crying in Restaurants. Mm-hmm. Um, Crying in restaurants is just a tremendous habit that I have. I cannot tell you the number of fine dining establishments where I have ended up with uh, wet Kleenex or like the, you know, mascara over the napkin. Um, And it always has this, you know, it's horrible thing where like, it's like, it's like, uh, I guess like um, passing gas in church or something. It's like, you're not (laughs) supposed to do it, you know, but like, I can't help doing it. And, uh, and it's gotten me into all sorts of scrapes over the years. So this is a collection of essays that I've been working on. Oh, wonderful. So is that coming out soon? Well, no, I mean, I haven't even sold. I mean, I haven't even, I'm still working. Right, on it. you're just working on it as a, yeah, as your yeah. current creative mm-hmm. project. Very exciting. Okay, well, um, it's a wonderful memoir. It's a wonderfully written memoir. It's a very powerful memoir. It's a very honest memoir. And um, I would also like to direct listeners to your website, sarahheppler.com, because there are some of your personal essays there, which, you know, range from very intimate to also very funny, like the one you wrote on Spanx, on wearing Spanx. Um, So, uh, yeah, everyone should um, check out sarahheppler.com as well. But uh, on that note, um, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate all of your insight. No, oh, I enjoyed it. Thank you. So there you go, Sarah Heppeler. Yes. Mm, it's very um, good. Do you like reading memoir? Um, I would say it's probably, yeah, not really. It's probably, <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to think of a way to put that that was going to be like 
you know, friendly. So that's um, why I interview the memoirists. <laughs> that's why you do them. Yeah, it's it's sort of um, I, I I I prefer fiction or I prefer straight non-fiction and I find memoir to be somewhere in the middle and to be honest the other thing is probably that very few people write happy memoirs Mm. like it's not people don't tend to write memoir if it's you know unless it's full of pain and torture and and Mm. I don't it's just not what I choose to read in my you know spare moments of which I have so few (laughs) Mm. there are also business memoirs memoirs of business books which don't necessarily go through not memoirs of business books memoirs of business people um which don't necessarily go through emotional pain and torture but they go through a very interesting journey so yes i well you know and i don't you know i'm actually like i've been meaning to read the steve jobs one for now is which is not a memoir i appreciate but Mm. um i probably prefer biography in some ways yes I, I, i like a more objective perspective and i like to know where i am and with memoir you are really talking about the most unreliable you know narrator in the history of the world mm. um you're only seeing it all from one perspective and yeah it's yeah it doesn't float my boat most of the time mm. okay. the steve jobs biography is absolutely fantastic the one by uh walter isaacson it's yes. just fantastic yeah i i just you know i like a really i also just really like a I want something that's really well written. I like a I like a narrative arc that's really clear and and I like the writing style to be there and mm. um you know so I will read a memoir if they you know if lots of people are talking about them mm. um I will read them uh, but it's not what I look for. No. No. Okay. Then let's move Sorry. On. <laughs> let's move on to our app pick for the week. Let's. Now, this is called Forest App. Because the aim is for you, it's on your phone, so it's mm-hmm. on Apple and Android and Windows, and um, it's your, the aim is to grow a forest. Now, the reason why this is what? good, the oh, reason Valerie, why, where are you taking me now? No, it's really good when you want to focus on your writing, or quite frankly, anything else. But you know, I'm suggesting that you want to focus on your writing. You mm. you you plant a tree in your forest, right? which is on your app because the thing is we get, you know, we, we are all procrastinators. So we think we might think, oh, I might just text someone. Oh, I might just listen to the podcast. I might, oh, I might just do whatever on my phone. Mm-hmm. So in the next 30 minutes after you plant your tree, it will grow while you're writing. Mm-hmm. But then if you pick up the phone, <laughs> the oh. tree will be killed and you will oh. never grow your forest. Oh, so Death it's like a tree. Yeah, thirty minutes conscience. in thirty minute, you know, um, blocks. Not just the death of a tree. Like you'll just never grow your forest. The aim is to grow a forest. Okay. So that you ha- you just work in these thirty minute blocks and stay focused. And have you tried it, Valerie? No, but like, will you try it and get back to us on how? Yeah, your forest for sure. Goes? I only discovered it yesterday. I'm keen okay. to grow a forest. All right, I'll be looking forward to hearing about your forest. No, I think it. Look, I, I think this whole focus and mindfulness thing is. It's kind of like the big issue of our generation now, mm, isn't it? Yes. It's a really interesting thing. And um, the fact that people can't walk away from their phone for half an hour, I, I find it fascinating. Mm. I mean, I, I find but if I'm actually writing, once I get into the writing business, I, I, can be, I could be anywhere. I, I, I'm in my head so deeply mm. that I don't even feel the cold through my fingerless gloves. Like that's where I am. 
Um, and then I find that I'm frozen. Like I'll, I'll yes. come, come out of a trance an hour later and realize that every muscle in my body is frozen into one position, hence mm. the walking. Um, but yeah, no, I can, I can see how this might be fun, but is is it like, you know, what are those things, what are those things called? Not Pokemons. You know, those things you used to have, Tamagotchis. Remember Tamagotchis, those? Tamagotchis, oh my them? God, yes. Otherwise they died. Yes, I that? used to have Tamagotchis. Oh, <laughs> I didn't. It was way too much responsibility for me. I know. I got really depressed when mine died. So <laughs> I didn't have one after that. Okay, I'm Seriously. a bit worried about your trees now, but whatever. <laughs> okay. You report back to us on your forest, okay? I shall. All right. Um, I thought I would share a particular link, which I love because it's absolutely my philosophy. And it's, I thought it's useful because I, I, we both often get asked, you know, what kind of hourly rate should we charge? Oh, yes. You know, when people are doing freelance writing or they're doing content writing or copywriting, what hourly rate do we charge? And this is a great post, which is on The Right Life. And it's by someone called Paul Jarvis who's a freelance writer, mm-hmm. and it's quite a long post, So, but I will summarise it and, you know, let me know what you think. And one of the things that he says is that is to not charge hourly, is to say to charge per job, and I'm a big believer in that. Now, there's a difference, though. I think it's totally fine to charge hourly if you're going into someone's office, they want you to be there from 9 to 5, mm. and they're giving you set tasks to do that day, and when you leave, that's the end of that. Go nuts, charge hourly, that's fine. But if you're writing, you know, a brochure or an article or several blog posts or whatever, I I always charge per job. So okay. you might tell me, well, there's five blog posts. I will ask you a whole heap of questions on what type of posts and, you know, I estimate the amount of time and I will charge per job. So if, if, the, if the scope is varied and they want 800 word blog posts instead of 500 word blog posts, I'll tell them, oh, well, the scope has changed, so we need to change the quote. Yeah. But one of the major points that Paul says is that if you say – okay, well, those five blog posts are going to take me, I don't know, three hours Mm. um, and my rate is whatever per hour, then people might go, well, you know, you might say, oh, and that means my rates are $150 an hour or something. Well, then they they can so easily say, well, I can get that writer to do it for $100 an hour. But Mm. that writer might actually take seven hours to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So doing it per hour is it's silly because what you're bringing to it is not only your time but your 20 years or whatever of experience and wisdom and skill. And one person might take one hour to do it but another person might take two hours to do it. Yeah. So what do you think? Do you charge per hour or per job or per what? Oh, look, I think it depends. Like I, I, I tend to price, the, price them out in my head as per job but sometimes, you know, the – the client insists on an hourly rate. So mm. I have to work out the hourly rate as to to make it worth my while because if the problem I find is, you know, that I've been doing this a long time. I'm really fast. Mm. I know what I'm doing. Mm. So it, it does take me an hour to do what it might take someone else three hours to do. Yep. And then you end up underpriced. Like you, you, you just annoy yourself because you're not getting the value for the job. So I have to work it out in my head as a what is this job worth and then break the hourly rate down depending on that. But I I think the thing that a lot of people find and I think the thing that's most difficult and maybe you can help with this Mm. is that, you know, you you do get those clients who just go, well, I can get it for $100.00 you know, somewhere else. I mean, my, my philosophy on that is, okay, off you go. Yes. But that doesn't necessarily, you know, that's not always easy to do. I mean, Mm. I have weeks where I think, oh, I probably should just do this because, you know, I, 
we all need the money. We need to make the mortgage, you know. Um, but I also know how incredibly resentful I'm going to be and how yes. cross I'm going to be if I say yes to that job. So what's your, what do you do with that? Yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, it does boil down to do I need to make the mortgage this week? And yeah, if if I do, of course I will still try to negotiate, yes. you know, but if I have failed to negotiate and yeah. if um, uh, I don't have an alternative, then I will say yes. But what I might do to try to alleviate that resentment that you mentioned is change, is still agree to the job but change the scope of it. So that they might say, I want you to do this job, it takes three interviews. And I'll say, yeah, but for that rate, okay, but I'll do it for two interviews. Yeah. The other thing I think is really important to do, and this is this is the other thing, because this is where some of the resentment comes in, is mm. particularly if this is somebody new that you might work for again, mm. you don't want to set yourself, you don't want you to set yourself up at a low rate right from the start, because it's always really difficult to move it up. Yes. Um, so you need to make it clear that, look, you know, I will do this job at this, but we are going to need to talk, you know, if there's further work down the track. Yes. You have to make it clear that this is not going to be your your rate set in stone for the rest of your existence because otherwise you just, you know, yes. it's not going to work for you. Yes. Personally. I also have a tendency to, it depends also if they have approached me or if I have approached them. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So I have, you have more, you know, sort of bargaining up your sleeve in a sense if they've approached you. Mm. Mm. But anyway, we could talk about that for hours, but oh, we, could. we have come to the end of our episode this week. What are you oh, going to be doing? Be true. <laughs> <laughs> what are you um, going to be doing in the coming week? Well, I am going to be, you know what I'm going to be doing, Valerie? I am going to be fine-tuning and tweaking my course for the Australian Writers' Centre on how to build your author platform. Oh, yes. Very mm. exciting. For those of you who want to register your interest in Alison's course, it's writerscentre.com.au slash platform. Yes. And I've seen the outline and it's freaking awesome. So it's awesome. I can't wait for it to go online. Mm, me either. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, and I, you, what are you going to be doing? I am going to be surrounded, surrounded in boxes and packing tape because I am moving in a few days. I have not packed one thing. So, oh, Valerie, yeah, all those colour-coded clothes have yeah. to go into boxes. Yeah, yeah, and they'll go in in a colour-coded fashion and they'll come straight out and go <laughs> onto the rail, onto the rack in the same colour-coded fashion. Oh, dear. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> With the colour-coded books. <laughs> yeah, no, well, the books don't get colour-coded, but they do get categorised, you know, by genre. Uh, although I did have a flatmate once who was so anal, all of his, um, you know, albums and CDs were alphabetised and mm-hmm. his books followed to the letter the Dewey system. What? I'm not joking. Who's got time for that? Him. His books followed the Dewey system. I could not believe it. And he could tell, like, sometimes I would just try to, you know, you know, F with his mind a bit and I would put a book in the wrong spot and he, bang, instant, knew that that book was in the wrong spot. Oh, dear. Mm, That's a worry. I've just cleared 60 books off my bookshelves in my study um, because I'm culling and you can't even tell. (laughs) <laughs> like that's how disorganised my oh, entire no. world is. You cannot eat 60 books oh, and you no. can't even tell. I know. Oh, it's dear. a worry. Anyway, what exciting lives we lead, Yes, Valerie. what exciting lives. So anyway, <laughs> thank you all for listening. Uh, please, please do connect with us on social media. You'll find Alison where? You'll find me on Twitter at at Al Tate, T-A-I-T. You'll find me on Facebook at Alison Tate Writer. And you will find me um, always at alisontate.com. 
Yes. And you'll find me at Valerie Koo on various forms of social media. And of course, if you uh, want the show notes, writercenter.com.au slash podcast. And we look forward to chatting to you next week. Excellent. This week's giveaway is Finding Audrey by Sophie Kinsella, which is about an ordinary teenager with some not-so-ordinary problems. Visit writercentre.com.au slash win for your chance to win. Entries close Monday 20 July, but if you're channeling Michael J. Fox and you're listening to this podcast in the future, don't worry. There'll be a new book giveaway at writercentre.com.au slash win that you can check out. In the meantime, if you're looking for the show notes to this episode, go to writercentre.com.au slash podcast.